turn in your own Bible, we'll be in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. This evening, we're going to continue our short Easter series entitled The Irony of Easter, as we continue to look at the events which began back in chapter 26, namely Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, and his Sanhedrin trial. And so as we turn the page to chapter 27, as morning breaks, having uh, been charged and condemned uh, with blasphemy, the Jewish leaders bring Jesus now to the Roman governor Pilate with a different charge, a charge of treason against Rome. If you have your Bibles, we'll be picking up in verse 11. Following the account of Judas's attempt to return the bribe money and his subsequent suicide. And so this evening, we'll be focusing our efforts uh, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, on two scenes. Uh, the first is the trial of Jesus before Pilate, and that will be in verses 11 through 26. And then the second scene will be the crucifixion and death of Jesus in verses 27 through 56. Uh, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we've been watching a, a movie entitled The Gospel of Matthew, which is a portrait of uh, word-for-word reading of the NIV. And so we'll be watching that and hearing God's Word read together as we learn about the person and the passion of Jesus once again through the lens of uh, Matthew's frequent use of irony. So we begin this evening with scene number one. The trial before Pilate, verses 11 through 26. Let's watch this and hear the word of the Lord together. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the government. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who was called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, 
but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The major irony in this uh, opening scene of chapter 27 is this. The innocent is punished in place of the guilty. And the guilty is freed in place of the innocent. Certainly there are several sort of smaller ironies that could be addressed here. But the major unmistakable irony of this section is found in the exchange of Jesus for Barabbas. Pilate's appeal to the crowd to release a prisoner uh, is essentially his attempt to stick it to the Jewish leaders. History tells us that he was antagonistic with them throughout his reign, as well as to free a man that he clearly deems to be no threat to Rome and not guilty of treason. Yet, uh, unexpectedly to him, though expected by us, the readers of Matthew's Gospel, the crowd rather is persuaded to choose Barabbas instead. And the irony is found in the comparison. Barabbas, according to John chapter 18, verse 40, is a murderous Jewish insurrectionist whose name literally means son of the father. And clearly, he is guilty as charged. In contrast, Jesus is the true son of the father. And clearly, he is no insurrectionist. Yet Jesus dies on the cross, we believe, literally prepared for Barabbas. And Barabbas, well, he walks scot-free. New Testament commentator D.A. Carson writes this. He says, The fact that three crosses were prepared strongly suggests that Pilate had already ordered that preparations be made for the execution of the three rebels. If so, Jesus the Messiah actually took the place of the rebel Barabbas because, of the, because the people preferred the political rebel and nationalistic hero to the very son of God. And so the first irony of our evening is that the innocent is punished for the guilty, and the guilty is freed in place of the innocent. And this exchange, I believe, is a microcosm. It's a microcosm of what Jesus would be doing on the cross, not just for Barabbas, but for every sinner. Not only does he literally die in Barabbas' place, charged with the same sin that Barabbas is acquitted for, but he would die in the place of every sinner and be charged by his father for every sin that we have committed. In other words, this scene is a foreshadowing of the gospel. That is, Paul writes, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone would even dare to die. But God, God 
demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the first irony is that the innocent one is punished in place of the guilty, and the guilty one is freed in place of the innocent. And that leads us then to our largest and final section of the night. It is the crucifixion and the death of Jesus in verses 27 through 56. Let's watch this together. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gold, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Darkness came over all the land. 
About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice. He gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. At this point in Matthew's account, the ironies come rather fast and furious. But we'll simply highlight four in this uh, large section. Starting in verses 27 through 31, if you have your Bibles open, starting with the soldier's disdain of Jesus. The first irony is this. The man who is mocked as a false king really is the king. Instead of a fake robe, he really deserved a, a royal. In place of a crown of thorns, he deserved a royal diet. Instead of mock worship, of course, he deserves all worship. The charge over Jesus' head on the cross reminds us of the truth that Matthew knows and that we are to be reminded of. He really is the king of the Jews. And more than that, he is the king of kings. Matthew ends his gospel with what is called the Great Commission. As Jesus says in part, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, D.A. Carson writes, Jesus is more than king of the Jews. He is king over all. He is Lord over all. He is king over the soldiers who mock him. He is king over me and you. The man who is mocked as king is the king. Small wonder that for the next 300 years, Christians would speak with profound irony of Jesus reigning.
from a cross. The second irony in Matthew's crucifixion account is found in verses 32 through 38. And it is this, irony number two, the powerless man is actually all-powerful. And so as we think about the process of crucifixion, it may be an understatement to say that it was aimed at demonstrating Rome's power as well as the victim's impotence. See, the, the, the victim carried their own crossbeam weighing over 100 pounds. At some point, Jesus was too weak to do that. He was stripped naked, utterly ashamed. Soldiers gambled for his garments underneath him, and they kept watch, um, sealing, if you will, his fate as the victim of crucifixion had absolutely no hope of rescue. And then there's the, the mockings, the, those who passed by, and they mock him for, for what they understood to be a claim to great power. Remember, they mock, saying, he who claims to be able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Imagine what sort of power one would have to have in the first century to have to do that. Summing it up, again, Carson writes, it's difficult to imagine a portrait more calculated to depict Jesus' utter powerlessness. But Matthew knows, and of course we know, that the man who is seemingly powerless is actually all-powerful. That his power is displayed in the weakness of the cross. See, the mockers didn't get that in the temple, which he was referring to, to be destroyed and raised on the third day, was not Herod's temple, but was his body. The ultimate meeting place between a holy God and simple people. And it was through the powerlessness of death that his true power, his resurrection power, would be ultimately displayed. And so the man, seemingly, who is utterly powerless, is in reality all-powerful. And this is the irony that is true not only of the cross and the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, but it is true in our Christian life. It is supremely exemplified in Jesus that in dying, we live. That in denying ourselves, we find ourselves. That in giving, we receive. That God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So that Paul can write, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The third irony comes in verses 41 and 42. And it's found again in the insults heaped upon him, but this time by the religious leaders. And the third irony is this, namely that the man who they think can't save himself actually does what? He saves others. They mock him for saving others. He saved others. Uh, he healed many. He exercised demons. He even raised others from death. But not being able to save his own life, they say he saved others. But he can't save himself. And the point of their sneering is as if to say, he isn't much of a savior after all, is he? 
But of course, the irony is that if he truly is to save others, which is why he came, truly save us from our greatest enemies of sin and Satan and death and hell, then he really can't save himself, can he? By choosing not to save himself, in reality, he saves others. And there's a fourth and final irony. It's found in verses 43 through 50. And it's once again found in the mockings of the religious leaders, as well as in Jesus' cry of despair from the cross. The fourth irony of the evening is this. The Son, God the Son, is forsaken by the Father so that we won't have to be. When they say of Jesus in verse 43, He trusts in God. Let God rescue Him if He wants Him. What they mean is that something like Jesus' trust was not real. And because uh, if it were, well then He wouldn't be in that place. He wouldn't be abandoned by God on the cursed tree. But the reality is that Jesus' trust in His Father was real. And because of it, he was experiencing, in the words of one commentator, the absence of God, the Father's judicial frown, as the weight of sin and guilt crushes Jesus, who bears the penalty alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is not forsaking faith in the Father. The Father, in a sense, is forsaking the Son in our place, so that we will have. So we'll close our sermon time uh, by transitioning into communion. And so if you have uh, taken the elements as you come in, I invite you to grab them here momentarily. If you're a Christian and you profess faith in Jesus Christ, then we invite you to share and remember uh, why Good Friday is indeed called good. As we're preparing these, I'd like to end with a poem, again from Dr. Carson, in which he entitles The Ironies of the Cross. So let's read this together and then we'll share in communion. Dr. Carson writes, On that wretched day the soldiers mocked him, raucous laughter in a barracks room. Hail the king, they sneered, while spitting on him, brutal beatings on this day of gloom. Though his crown was thorn, he was born a king. Holy brilliance bathed in bleeding loss. All the soldiers blind to this Stunning theme, Jesus reigning from a cursed cross. Awful weakness mars the battered God-man, far too broken now to hoist the beam. Soldiers strip him bare and pound the nails in, watch him hanging on the cruel tree. God's own temple down, it has been destroyed. Death's remains are laid in rock and sod. But the temple rises. In God's wise ploy, our great temple is the Son of God. Here's the one who says he cares for others. One who says he came to save the lost. How can we believe that he saves others when he can't get off that bloody cross? Let him save himself. Let him come down now. Savage jeering at the king's disgrace. But by hanging there is precisely how Christ saves others as the king of grace. Draped in darkness, utterly rejected, crying, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bears God's wrath alone, dejected, 
weeps the bitterest tears instead of me. All the mockers cry, he has lost his trust. He's defeated by hypocrisy. But with faith's resolve, Jesus knows he must do God's will and swallow death for me. Next, we'll remember what Jesus did for us by taking communion. Let's watch this communion video as we prepare our hearts and minds. Let's share the body of Christ broken for us together. He removed the next layer to reveal the Jews. We'll begin reading in verse 27. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's share the blood of Christ together poured out for us. 